Rock and roll. Kia ora, everybody. What's up? It is Robert Morena Morena. It is Thursday in New Zealand, not Friday. It is Wednesday here in America. Um, back in month seven of, of, of California quarantine, living the flipping dream. Uh, today on the episode is episode 262, and we have the wonderful, amazing, good souled brain weapon, amazing, good friend, and good brain. That is Dr. Hanama Elder. Kia ora. Tēnā koe, tēnā koutou, e te waiti, e te waita, morena, morena koutou. Um, are you on Waiheke right now or are you in the city? What are I you doing? I'm, I'm on Waiheke, which is wonderful. I get to work remotely one day a week, which is um, a wonderful blessing. So I'm working remotely today and I'll be seeing patients in their whānau via Zoom sh- shortly after this. It's been quite interesting before we go into the whole bunch of other stuff, just the the way traditional work has been forced to adapt through technology and that it's not weaker business for it. You know, the, as long as the communication is there in many respects, there's still as much power and efficiency and in some cases actually more efficiency done through utilizing technology. So it's it's been – I was talking to someone yesterday runs a big company and he was literally going – the time it saved me in my life to be have more time with my family has made it so much worthwhile. And I think at the moment there feels like there's a tension between pre-COVID, how work's supposed to be nine to five to during slash post, what is is and is acceptable with where physically have to people have to be to be able to actually do their job. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. But you liking it? it is. Yeah. I do. And I and I've I've found this, and we've, I've been part of lots of global conversations about this over the last six months or so. What we're finding in child and adolescent mental health is that, you know, access to services has been a major barrier for all sorts of reasons. It's a particular barrier for Māori and Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, and using using Zoom and the normalisation of Zoom, which is, is what we use in the DHB services, means that... Uh, we're seeing people turning up for their appointments because the barriers around transportation are gone. Also, it's a more familiar experience for younger people because this is what they do with their mates all the time. So it takes us into a different, more intimate space that does raise some other questions about how we do this appropriately and safely. So, for example, I see teenagers every day uh, face-to-face and through through technology. And they're taking me into their private spaces in their homes, into their bedrooms. And so you can imagine that, um, that they are perhaps, because it's so normal for them and so familiar, they're not so aware of the fact that, that, that they're drawing relative strangers into their, the privacy mm-hmm. of their lives in a way that they hadn't done before when they come into clinics. So the the group of us who work in this area globally, child and adolescent psychiatrists, for example, psychologists, other health professionals, we're having to talk a bit more about how we um, highlight the boundaries around that, the safety issues around that. So it's raising some new issues. It's breaking down barriers, but it's also creating more questions. Yeah, I was just think, thinking on that. There was a study done a while ago, and when there was an AI robot that was a doctor, people were giving them way, way, way more honest information because they didn't feel it was a person and it wasn't in person. And then I'm wondering with this, there's probably two elements to it. If they you're taking them into their room, they may not realize it, but you may be visual you will visually be getting more context to the actual environment that they're in because when you're in your sterile or controlled space and they enter yours that's your world and they're a part of it opposed to, oh, they don't have bedding. That's weird. That's There's no stuff in the background. Oh, it's a total, you know, it probably gives more context. So in, in a weird way, yeah, the, it probably breaks down more barriers to give you more insights, but then probably brings up a whole bunch of different, um, yeah, ch- challenges to navigate through. But from a doctor's perspective, is that, it's probably better because if you've got more intel and, and context, you, you can see their world a bit better to be able to help them more. So, it might be making your job better, easier. Not maybe not easier. I don't know. I yeah. think it's giving us much richer data, and mm. um, it's creating an interface where it's so personal and intimate, 
and um, there's an opportunity to have, as you say, conversations that when you're face to face with somebody, particularly teenagers, you know, the clinical the clinical spaces, as you say, can be kind of homely, but they're still clinics. So um, teenagers receive information about how to present themselves, what's okay to talk about, what's kind of off limits from their, from their own assessment of the environment and the people in it, the adults in it. Whereas when we go into their space, they have a sense of control, which is actually what we want it's them to home have. home court advantage. It's like sport, home court advantage. It's a thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm loving yeah. it, and I love the fact that um, for me, traveling, you know, from Waiheke Island is—I've been doing it for 20 years plus, but it is a little bit of a mission. So to have a day where I can be at home mm. and do my job is wonderful. Good on you. Um, I guess let's get the plug out of the way first because I actually think it's a good plug and it's very relevant as well. You've done a book. Yeah. Yeah, it's I'll show very you cool. Comment. Yeah, you got it. There you go. Uh, Maori yeah. wisdom for a connected life lived in yeah. harmony and our planet. Um, mm. in, a, in a nutshell, why did you why did you write the book? Because what I'm interested to get into is the bridge between where where culture and legacy stays consistent for generations, but we live in a moment that feels on transactions, and there's something there which I'm keen to dig into. But yeah, why did you do the book Aroha, Dr. Hinamoy Aura? I wrote this book because it seemed to me there was a there was a moment in time where a whole lot of key threads were weaving together. One of those was around my mum. So we talk about legacy. My mother died almost 30 years ago from breast cancer. And um, at that point, I was pregnant with my son. I really felt this enormous push to step up a generation. And then my mother left all sorts of clues after her death, which I which I talk about in different parts of the book. She took me to the medical school because she gifted her body there, which is a very unusual thing for Māori people to do, as, as you well know. And, and some of the listeners may not be so aware, but this is something that, generally speaking, giving body parts or giving our bodies when we've passed away is, is not culturally done. Um, but we honoured her wish. And so there was there was that key experience for me in the wider whānau. And as I've gone on in medicine and become a psychiatrist, I've been fascinated by, um, generally speaking, up until quite recently, the cultural silence, the, 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 the disconnect between the huge number of Māori people who present with serious mental illness and the lack of cultural resources that are available to our people in distress and also the awareness that there's a lot of healing that can come from these cultural resources. And the other part of the puzzle for me has been um, the environment. So as we live more and more disconnected lives from the environment, from the from the ocean, from the land, from from the bush, from the nahere, the forest, um, in cities where our lives are so busy that we we don't privilege that time in nature, this is also impacting on our mental health. And and the thing that kind of drew all of those strands together for me were what we call whakatauki or whakatauaki, Māori proverbial sayings. So long long story short, I'd, I'd had this awareness that these proverbial sayings were really powerful portals into this massive wellspring of material. And with this incredible, loving, compassionate, fierce energy that we call in our culture um, aroha. Mm. Something that people are seeking, um, but often struggle to discover and find within ourselves. So for me, it was it was uh, a way to it was a, a relatively easy access way to bring forward this cultural wisdom and reflect on it. So so I strangely enough, how it came about practically was the the UK one of the UK publishers of Penguin Random House found me on a New Zealand website about 100 Māori leaders. So she messaged me on Instagram and we talked on Instagram and she said, I'd like you to write a book. So I said, okay, um, mm, sure. Uh, I felt a bit young to write a memoir. And so I thought, well, I'd been writing these new newspaper columns 
um, on a Sunday and including these proverbs. So I said, how about I write a book of um, a year's worth of proverbs, one for every week, you know, being a, a little ambitious and thinking, oh, I want to challenge myself. Mm. Uh, 52 proverbs, 52 whakatauki or whakatauaki, the difference is whakatauaki, we know the person who coined that phrase and uh, write some reflections about how these sayings have affected my life, how they've helped me in, in tough times. And and she said, great, do it, write five, send me, it, send me the document and I'll take it to the team and the rest is history. So cool. Um, what, what, when I was 30, I did um, an article on LinkedIn on my 30th birthday and it was um, 30 lessons I learned at 30 years old and it was a, a time stamp of like, things that I, I'd learned, but with this, I, I just wrote down here, it's like, it's, it's timeless relevance because in through culture, it's relevant. Um, it's yeah, to the generational piece. But what many people also not know is my mother gave me this book and in this book, I know in this book, I, I won't show you in it, but literally from end to end, it's pretty much the same thing with a whole bunch of different, um, sayings and everything that she's, she's collected. And, um, so, um, you know, first one here, uh, the first part of dealing with any problem is the ability to, do, to define it correctly. And it's just like life lessons and learnings, but just like the entire thing of just handling. Wow. So I, and I, I carry this with me. Yeah. It's, um, and so when I, so, cause I knew you doing the book and then I saw it and I was looking through, I was like, I love the format of like, um, gems, but have such a long tail of relevance that, and especially mixing the, the culture side. Um, and I, I have a favorite because I got an early, I don't know if it was an advanced copy, but I got a, I got a, I got a, I got a sneak peek. Um, it was number five. It was, uh, kuri e tangata haere. um, as the dog follows a scent, a traveler relies on the hospitality of others. And then the, and you try to translate it when it's like, you know, beware blindly following your nose, be deliberate, make good choices. And for me, you went like, so is that translated down? And then in my head, then it was like um, a sniper, not shotgun, chestnut checkers. And that one really, really stuck out to me because I, I love playing chess. I lo yeah. love chess. And when I talk about long game, short game, it's been like very deliberate and calculated with that opposed to, you know, I guess when I was younger, you go shotgun, you try and go after it and you, you know, you're the dog following the scent and you're just going around um, instead of the hospitality or the strategy of partnering with others. And so I, I loved your interpretation of where that came from and yours, but then when it crossed over into my world, it still had relevance, but in a different sort of way. So I just sort of like to give you props on number five. That, that one really <laughs> spoke to me there. Um, it's yeah, cool. <laughs> What's it like to, I mean, obviously you're going to have to do a, mem a memoir as well at some stage. When you look at, um, uh, actually I had, uh, we had John Tamahiri on uh, last week and I was saying, you know, uh, Maori storytelling is generational and it becomes, you know, years. And obviously the Maori party has only been around for so 2004. So, you know, under 20 years, what, what do you think the story has been so far. So, but then when you think of your own journey, you've had a pretty um, eclectically random, diverse world of media and culture and people and community and all sorts of craziness. How would you define your own story to this point if you were, um, you know, if you were the future looking back at the past? I think my life's been, um, in a nutshell, probably best defined by fearless learning. Hmm. Uh, I, I have this innate curiosity and lack of fear around learning things uh, and openness to that. And, you know, that's taken me into some, when I look back, I think, wow, that was kind of brave. That was, hmm. Uh, you know, where, where was the where was the frontal lobe there? Um, but but anyway, yeah, I think I think learning has been a, a massive driver in my life since a very very young age. Is it learning or exploring? Because definitely because think, both. All of those yeah. things. Yeah, we Do you can explore, use explore then word. learn. Uh, well, the other, the other part of learning in, in Te Reo Māori is lear, the word for learn and teach are the same. So I, I also see that interface of um, the, you know, see one, do one, teach one is is, a, is one of the kōrero from medicine. 
is that we we are shifting our our roles from learning to sharing and teaching and passing on. So there's there is that sense of fluidity of sharing and exploring together. That coll collaborative learning is definitely my style. I like to uh, go on a journey with others around that, trying things out. Um, but that sense of um, your yeah, fearlessness and courage around around trying things out. Well, Discovery. I think as well, when you sit on the psych psychiatrist side, when it's on the brain, it is, you know, it's mega chest versus chest. But a big part of it as well, do you get um, do you get energized by being able to mentally dissect and really break down how something that's invisible becomes visible for you to understand? Like um, you can watch it, you can watch someone in a spot and you can pretty much see how you think they're feeling in their world and their times with how they're going to react to that, then what they may or may not do and how, where the energies and their own internal handbrakes will be like, do you like decoding? Uh, I know it sounds quite not intrusive to others, but do you love decoding someone's headspace to then almost work out their own puzzle, but on their, on their behalf? Is that like an inquisitive thing for you or do you, is, is it more natural to, to help? And then that that's the process that you do to get there. Uh, my sense is my process is not about dissecting and finding the parts. Okay. I I have a um, uh, an experience of really using my my whole being, my wairua, and and some of the people listening will know what I mean by that. Maybe some don't. So just as a segue, wairua is our our Maori experience of being connected to everything in the universe. Some people translate it as spirituality. So there's our wairua, there's our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our gut. Um, I, I don't experience breaking things down so much, although I, that is a part of it. Um, but there's, there's, there's another layer which is very much about the, the vibe of the, of the experience of the person. Um, Energy first. I, I think so. I'm, I'm very aware. I've been very aware for a long time that I, I try to, I try to pick up within the first few seconds of meeting people that I'm going to be working with. The, the style of interaction that might best suit them. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I think I'm quite a different kind of psychiatrist depending on the person's needs, and that can evolve over time. So I'm, I'm constantly seeking data about um, the, the sort of exquisite nuances of where the person's at, the, 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 the pauses, the words, the types of words, the tone and manner, the body language. So yes, there is that aspect which is about some of the details, but that doesn't override the the broader sense of how those things all fit together. So that's that is kind of fascinating to to consider that with you this morning. Mm. Thanks for that. No, no, because I, um, when you know these um, hard cells, soft cells, IQ, EQ, art versus mm. science, you know, there's the artist and the engineer, you know, and even though some people have the similar type roles, but their approach and process to going after those things is totally different. You know, like I always come back to sport, you know, like a Phil Jackson's energy of how he coached Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, it was exact, it was more holistic and feel and vibe and, and that. And then some of them are more calculated and data and dot, 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 and people don't fit in and out. But then I was just wondering with a, with a cultural lens on it as well, when it becomes about more of a whole being and it comes down to that energy, how do you, I guess, you know, weave energy with education into a, a unique formula with with a depth for emotion to actually genuinely help someone. It was just more a thing of how, like I'm just in, I enjoy trying to figure stuff like that out to see how others yeah. do because that's something that I enjoy. Um, or I don't know if it's enjoy. I, I find like maybe mentally challenges as well for myself. I was just wondering from a um, you know an educated uh, soul if if that is maybe the the way they some people are more you know kick, 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 and someone are more like you know more more feeling vibes and clearly you're more feeling vibes which is good <laughs> yeah i suppose one of the other things that strikes me listening to what you're saying is that there's another old adage from from psychiatry which goes who are you who am i who are we together and so 
It's about what happens in the relational space between people. That's really an important source of data rather than privileging these um, boxes, if you will, of, um, yes, of course, I'm interested in, you know, how people are sleeping and the quality of their sleep and how what that means to them. And I'm interested in what they're eating and and if, if there are changes. And, and th so there are many aspects that I'm checking through, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not satisfied with um, some sort of um, just just the detail. I want the emotional tone around that. So those those um, that reductionist approach, you might say, is necessary but not sufficient. Mm. It has it gives you some some of the framework, but actually we're also because we're not only seeking data, we're seeking to find ways to shift things for people and actually to help people discover that for themselves. So it's all very well if I might have my own view and I might um, in different ways share that at different points in time, but really I'm there to, as a servant to the other person or the other people who are coming with, whether they can articulate it right off the bat or not, they're coming with some sort of question. I mean, let's face it, I often joke, I'm the least favourite specialist that anyone wants to see. Nobody wants to see a psychiatrist, and I think that's quite right. I'd love to live in a world where we don't need psychiatrists. Unfortunately, we live in societies which um, promote mental illness. It's like we live in societies that promote obesity, we live in societies that actually make it very, very hard, virtually impossible for people to be mentally healthy. So unfortunately, mm. that's why you have people like me. And um, But really, I am the servant of those people that far know whether, the, and they've got people in the room, whether they come individually or not, there are people there with them, alive and dead, who they bring with them. And they come with some sort of question. Usually when they're seeing me, they're pretty desperate. You know, they've mm. tried everything else in the hope that it won't be a mental illness or it won't be categorized in that in that arena. And so um, they've, tr they've bent over backwards to try to avoid seeing me. And I mm. respect that. So by the time people get to see me, they, they have some drive to have answers, to have um, some kind of purposeful interaction with me, and they're usually pretty bloody scared. Yeah. It's um, within the, the doctor space of where, where you're at, are you seen as an outsider compared to other psychiatrists because you roll different? Are you... Are you the mm. outsider of the outsiders? Like, and I ask that because there's an um, organization called Rare, by started by a friend of mine, um, uh, Tara McKinty, who's the corrective director, corrective director at Google, and she. Mm. It's about um, celebrating and um, basically championing diversity within the creative sector, and so um, I was one of the speakers over at, um, in, in Australia, and I just got up and I was like, if you walk down the street the creatives are already the 1% that everyone thinks are flipping weirdos. The fact that this needs to exist means you're the 1% of the 1%. You're the outsider of the outsider. Mm -hmm. And then I was wondering, you know, um, within your world and your space, I can almost guarantee it. I don't think there are a thousand other crew rolling like Hannah Moa in, in the world of psychiatry. So are you your own outsider within the world of outsiders? Are you the 1% of the 1%? Sadly, I think I might be, and and I'm reluctant to to say that, um, and I'm just processing that as on the fly. I mean, I'm the only Maori child and adolescent psychiatrist who who who's you know out there speaking te reo, upholding our values, um, pretty visible in the Maori world. Um, so there's that that sense, and um, I've I've just been. You know, I talk in the book a bit about how one of my colleagues said to me once, well, of course, you're outside the tent, he said to mm. me. And I was like, wow, what does that even mean? And initially I was a bit, I was a bit affronted. I was like, oh, what are you saying? Like, we're not colleagues. We're not 
you know, part of the same journey of trying to help people. But actually, as I reflected on it, I realized I, I'm glad I'm outside the tent because being inside the tent that he was alluding to was not a great place to be, frankly. And I've been I've been part of this um, rather interesting other tent in the last couple of days, which is the, um, the what's called the Grand Challenges, which is an interesting title. The you better Grand get a tattoo. Challenges. It sounds like you get rings. You sound like you get rings. Look, it's a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation event. It's an invited health conference, and it happened virtually this year, as you can imagine. And um, its its byline is something like, you know, health solutions for those in most need around the world. And I've been part of this and getting up at three or four in the morning to, to watch some of the live presentations. And you know what I've noticed, sadly, Rebecca, is that um, there's no structural Indigenous participation. There's no Indigenous organisations. There's no... I think I'm the only Indigenous person who's part of it. I've looked at the posters. I, I, you know, obviously put in a poster about COVID and Maori and how this is like we are reliving the Spanish flu and this is bringing back all sorts of historical things from, you know, colonization where people took infected blankets to to indigenous places to to kill people. Um, so all of that is wrapped up in COVID, and I thought, well, you know, I needed to bring that discussion to the fore. And this, this sort of cultural silence around Indigenous communities, oh. when we know we have really good evidence that Indigenous peoples around the world are the worst affected, have the lowest mortality rates, have the highest infant mortality rates, have horrible rates of suicide in our young people. And yet I'm at this, I'm, at, I'm in the global tent, I'm at this party, and I'm thinking now, you know, I don't, I don't want to be rude, party goers, but there's there's this sort of elephant in the room as far as I'm concerned. And I, I want to raise that in a respectful way, but I want to raise that. It's such a low that's such a loaded um situation because the 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 oh it's so stuffed because there's layers which of respect for the intent of those within it. Yes, absolutely versus the um, potential lack of holistic zoom out mirror to its own self with, is it a true representation of the people that are there to try and help? <laughs> and yeah. so that's interesting. Um, also because from a cultural side that I think the one you said there is cultural silence. And this is something that I've, I put it, I've put quotes and things about this for quite, quite a few years. And it was around um, the, the fact of saying New Zealand, uh, Rob Campbell brought this up years mm -hmm. ago when I first met him. He talked about a unity of what is New Zealand's unity of purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And that that one thing he said to me stuck for flipping ages. I've been just waiting and waiting and waiting. And the closest I could get to think of it was when the All Blacks play Australia in the Bleeder Slow or the Rugby World Cup. And at 7.35 on a Saturday, the whole nation stops. But at that moment, what do we lead with? Culture. And what do we lead with culture? The haka. But then, and so then I went down this rabbit hole of chess thinking. Then I said, okay, well, isn't it hypocritical of a, a, a bunch of New Zealanders when they want to proudly use culture in Māori dim at 7.35 on a Saturday and they like, eh, he, ho, and they're just like hyped and amped. And then on Monday at midday, they're like, oh, it's bloody Marys, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, no, 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 no. Culture you can't use temporarily when it's suitable for you to feel good about yourself, but then the rest of the time dismiss them as a liability for, for community. And there's something really interesting in that because I'd asked um, when Unity of Purpose, I've asked so many people around um, and no one's had an answer. And we actually cracked it this year finally with, I think it was, it might've been with Jolly Hodson from CEO of Spark was saying, you know, the Treaty of Waitangi brought together culture and community, but what has been the point since the Treaty of Waitangi was signed all those years ago that community um, culture and commerce has been aligned on the same page. And it hasn't actually been a moment of unity until COVID. And then, because mm. that stopped, that unified everyone in the exact same boat for all of it. I just then asked, back to, back to your point, when 
if we're aware that culture, we lead with pride, but then there is this cultural silence that exists. But if you think about New Zealand compared to many other nations, like it's becoming cool as shit to the embrace today. Or now we've got, we've got Maori language week. We've got all this sort of momentum rolling. Um, it brings up the last piece, which will lead to the question before the real rant was um, if they then realize that the liability is an asset and then they start, and then businesses and commerce starts interacting with culture how do you have a safeguard around making sure that it is not um, exploitation over empowerment for that culture? So does hopefully that thread makes sense, but how do you, how does all that sit with the perception versus reality of what you think New Zealand's dealing with culturally when it comes to its own cultural silence? So lots of, lots of questions there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the first thing I think is about um, leadership. So the way the way to mitigate and keep a vigilant uh, gaze on the the risk of tokenism and exploitation is to have Maori leading and, and groups of Maori leading at every layer. So um, you know. You, you will have come up against this multiple times and many of the people watching will have too, is, you know, you can have one Māori leader in a, in a governance group, in a um, leadership team. That's not going to fly because that person and their uh, ability to influence and create traction is very limited in that way. So, so it is about the people in groups in those positions, and then it's about how they are able to, or how those organisations are then able to embed structurally um, the the ways of working, the culture maybe with a with a medium sized C, um, the culture of that organisation that continues to um, be responsive and sensitive and, and um, provide provide leadership around what do we do when we come up against situations that where there's some perceived benefit but also some perceived risk and what do how what is our cultural risk analysis around that and who are the groups that we can rely on to lead that and how do they lead that discussion I mean I had a really interesting um little conversation the other day that maybe highlights some of this. So a, a Pākehā woman who's in training to become a health professional came to me for a, a little bit of supervision. And and her, her experience was that in one setting where she's in a university, there is what one, one mechanism to try to manage this is that the Māori students have their own group in the Pākehā, the non-Māori students have their own group. And and yet she is one of the Pākehā students is, is is feeling the tension of that and is worried that she's missing out on some stuff, some goodies from from, from not being included with the Māori group. And, and um, it also reminded me of some of the work that I've done in Brain Research New Zealand over the last five years where at the beginning I said we have to have a space where the Māori researchers can get together by ourselves. And and the first few years I get these calls, you know, oh, so-and-so wants to come to that wānanga, that, that meeting. Uh, they want to do research with Māori. And I'd say, are they Māori? No. Well, they can't come. But they really want to do research with Māori. Are they Māori? No. Well, then I'm sorry. They can't come to that meeting. So, so long story short, I'm there with the student. She's sort of bemoaning the fact that she doesn't get the exposure to the stuff that the Māori students are getting. And then she's saying, but in the clinical space, there are, you know, a few people like me who are trying to provide group sharing of things that um, I think we all need to up our game so that we're all culturally competent to work with Māori whānau in the, in the important work that we do when people are mentally unwell or distressed. And we have a law for that in New Zealand. We have a Health Practitioners Competence Assurance Act. We're all supposed to be culturally competent has no teeth but we'll come to that maybe another time so i'm just i'm just illustrating hmm. that um non-maori people have 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 some come up against things where they don't have access and and they struggle with that and we we need leadership we need maori groups of maori in leadership roles to help 
Help alpaca colleagues realize that our sole role is not to educate you all the time. We mm. actually do have to have time and space to work with our own people. We are all at different places on the colonized AF spectrum. You know, we have Tamiti making fantastic T-shirts now that say colonized AF because we're all colonized to some degree or other. So we need that time and space to work with our own. You know, we experienced it, the power moves, right? There's a big group of Māori, all at different stages of, of our development and of confidence. And what I picked up and what I had lots of little private side conversations about was, hey, I want to build up my real Māori. I want to reconnect with my whānau. Like, how, how to how to become part of that um, whakapapa again when colonization mm. continues to do such a brilliant job of breaking down our identities. So long way, long story short to try to answer mm. many of your questions there, Hua. Don't know if I did the job. No, 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 it's, it's, it's good. It just got my, my head to, I was going to bring up, um, yeah, so last year for those, uh, the Palmas retreats, so we got like 80 of kind of weapons in my own personal circle. wasn't public any, anything. We went down um, and no one knew anyone, but everyone knew me. And it was all my crew from all these different worlds of, of entrepreneurship and business and CEOs and boards and public and private and young bucks, old bucks, you know, the, uh, Tony Falconson came, he was like 73 or whatever. And then we've got like Alexia Hilbert at was like 18 or 17. So it's a huge range. When 80 strangers walked into that room on day one, did you remember what happened? The Māori crew. The Māori, we all sat together. <laughs> we all sat together. But what was interesting is the energy of that one table out of the uh, six or eight tables changed the dynamic of all of it because culture was close and they felt safe. And then that actually spread out. And then what happened then is all those other barriers came down and the energy shifted. And that's what everyone had said. So to, to, to probably recap the whole point is when I, I genuinely feel when if it's one person in a tent of – it's, it feels more tokenistic, tick the box. There's no, there's no banter back. It, it, it's, it's like a black sheep in the corner, whatever, right? But when culture empowered close, closely, the spark, the fire, the flame, the, the energy that radiates off that is like a magnet to draw everything else in, which actually changes energy. And I watched it happen because I knew that over half the room has never never really dealt with Māori dim before or culture, but they could tell it was something that they wanted to be a part of, which then obviously led to that. And I even said the other day, you know, I, I genuinely feel being Māori New Zealand is almost is a superpower. The liability for many is actually a huge asset. When you and then when you lay a tech in the modern day that we live in, when everything is fragmented and wide and everything, everyone's got the same tech and all the same shit applies. What stands? Storytelling, brand, creativity. And what is what is, what does Maoridom have? Storytelling. It's got legacy, it's got creativity. And so I think when those that are starting to see it now, like the work that Andrew Baker and um Hennede Johnson did with Air New Zealand, um, there's certain people who are doing who are leading the charge, it's making everyone else take note, be like, wait a second, this shit's actually pretty cool. Oh, wait a second, blah, blah, blah. And it just sort of leads to that next point, which is where you got to start being careful because then when corporates and globally traded publicly listed companies start seeing value in culture, and if they start yeah. controlling some of those messaging, it's actually a danger to those cultures around the world, which um, can actually be um, pretty dangerous. So I, I, I think that that is a huge threat to local culture is global commerce. Um, mm. And it's something that I hope – uh, those with the right now in nationally all around the world who who control their culture or who understand the nuances of it, just get empowered to try and do that because the last thing um, I saw a, a specific situation where it was looking like a European uh, publicly listed company was exploiting local Maori culture mm. for their profit, direct gain, and I felt so uncomfortable about it because it just um, it didn't feel right. So that probably will happen in the next over the next decade, but it's something that I, I think about. Yeah, look, and I and I think that raises really good, really good points too around this appropriation and those risks. And I think, look, um, there's there's always going to be the risk of of that happening, and savvy commercial entities will also realise that if they do that inappropriately, the backlash eventually will be horrible. And so they need to 
they and, and the guardianship role that all of us have, you know, and I suppose I want to grow that sense of lead, leadership and guardianship amongst, um, you know, my own whānau, around uh, Māori health practitioners, Māori educators, Māori businesses, so that there's a, a strength and a confidence around uh, educating other people about, well, no, that's not how you do it, and that's actually... You know, in, in our culture, things can come back at you. There's a kind of Māori karma, if you like. Um, just want to make sure that my battery doesn't um, run out here, just to check right. the technology. Okay. It, is, it, is, it has happened multiple times that, that, that <laughs> interviews have died because we've just had mad banter and it's just dropped off. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know, feel I bad think, to I keep... I think we're back on track now. Um, so, so I think there are some... There are some inbuilt checks and balances that that um, that the culture has within itself to um, to protect itself, and mm. and as we learn more about that kaitiaki role, that guardian role, and I talk about it quite a lot in the book because that's I think an essential healthy role for human beings is the kaitiaki tanga of our planet, the kaitiaki tanga, and 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 in this sense, it's about protecting. Maori cultural values um, around how how we actually do that, our relationship with the planet. You know, what's good for the planet is also good for us. When we do healing activities with the planet, with our moana, with papatuanuku, we we receive health benefits from that as much as papatuanuku and tangaroa, the deities of the planet and of the ocean. So it's a, a mutually, it's a, a reciprocal benefit. And I think the same is true in commerce that, um, yes, we've got to be mindful of risks and appropriation is real. And, and actually, despite our best efforts, there's probably already going to be the always going to be somebody who will try it on. Um, and we continue to support the vast bulk of people who understand, you know, you don't mess with this stuff. Yeah. You don't mess with Maori culture. You don't mess with stealing uh, Maori cultural um, taonga. These are taonga. These are treasures. They have survived from time immemorial because they're powerful. They have their own Maori. They have their own energy and essence. So the at this, you know, at the same time we talk about risk, let's also talk about the robust quality of Maori culture. It's not some sort of delicate little flower it's not some sort of flimsy little thing that can be that can be you know washed away or or broken down look at the resilience of our culture let's also focus on that mm. and i think that's also something that particularly maori businesses are are tapping into it's a, a great little segue because i got asked by a student at, ages ago, you know, as a hub in a Māori entrepreneur, it's like, you know, entrepreneurs, 95% of them fail. And then within Māoridom, like in the in the, in the money world, I think it was like only 2% of dollars go into to, to Māori or even potentially less. So I was saying, you know, you're kind of the 1% of the 1%. Um, and when you're young on the come up as well, because there's all these other sort of pressures. Now, what I find a little bit, what has been tough for me personally um, is, you know, we're probably in a, a bit of a, a generational mini gap, but on the, on the come up, I never really felt through culture. I had the right to say things in a cultural environment because I was the young buck, shut your face, know your role, you know, like, and and hundred percent out of respect, you're not going to say shit. Like there's a, there's a text channel on that one of Barry Suter's T3W thing with like all these just moldy hitters and stuff. I've been on there for like two years. I've maybe put three replies in, in two years or something, because it's just like it's not my place type scenario. Um, oh, have I lost you? You there? Oh no, have we lost you, Hanuma. Don't go. Oh wait, shit, team. We might have lost her. Come back. I'll see if she she's back up. Oh, something's happened. All right, hold up, team. See if she jumps back in. Right. Oh, there oh, you are. I'm still here. Hang on. Yes. Is that Waiheke internet? What's going on? <laughs> are you there? 
Oh, if Waiheke Internet's just cut, cut down on us, I'm going to be so dark. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Oh, dear. <laughs> I, I, think, I think you're back. I'm here. Okay. You've right? videoed fr- frozen for a whole bunch. No, no, I think, but you're back. I'm in the show. Everyone can see and hear me, it says. Got it. I'm waving. I can see you. Oh. I try and jump back in. Oh, geez. We lost her? Sorry, team. Hopefully she can jump back in. I'll text her. Oh, she's back. All right. I don't, We're back. It, it told me it was not my fault, which was which was a lovely Oh, that's comment. good. I think we've got a, a tech from, fail. From, what whatever we're using here. We. Oh, Christ, come back, internet. I think it's – I wonder if it's just literally the software stuffing up. Cause it's, hello, it's, hello, hello. Hello, can you hear me? Oh, now no, you disappeared. Uh, Shit. Awesome. Can't get this out. Sorry, team. I'm not sure what's what's going on. Um, if you can hear me, um, just comment and say, yep, can hear you. Um, I've just got a bit of a gong show happening. Sorry, team. Um, hopefully she'll jump back in. We can get back into the mix because this banter is going bloody great. And I've really been enjoying it. So hopefully we don't, hopefully we don't use it. Uh, here we go. Devices not connected. Oh, it is her fault. It's coming up. You guess we'll need to connect their mic cam before you can add them to the stream. Hanama, uh, click, um, accept mic and camera. I wonder if she's doing it off her phone and then we'll be able to jump back in. So now I'm getting a notification. This is a, one of the one of the the fails with technology. Sometimes I'll click this up, see if she she's in there. It's hopefully loading. Waiheke, are you there? Trying. Yes. Can you see me now? Okay. I can see you now. Cool. Should we try again? Should we? We're there. So I, I, I'm going to blame. Well, I got a notification saying there was some tech stuff. So who knows? Oh, no, you're gone again. Do you want to try jumping off your phone? Oh, damn it. Sorry, team. Yeah? I think. Oh, I'm not doing anything to us. Sure. Oh, sorry, team. How can I get her in? Okay, I'll message her this. Yes. Hello. From yes. <laughs> well, I I don't know. Look, it's I'll I'll delete the five minutes of it. It's fine. Sorry. That's <laughs> okay. Oh, we've had a couple. Of, like through through lockdown, we had a couple of big fails with um internet before with some of the, some of the shows so don't don't stress it wasn't as bad as any of those okay okay so where were we we were we were, getting we were going deep stuff. we were going deep um we were talking about potential uh oh actually that's what, that's what i was saying when i was younger um i was feeling tension about uh, not being able to speak up as a, as a young buck within within culture um and then i was saying that within Māori dim it's always been a lot of uh, 
lots of hooey after hooey after hooey, and then they would always have a joke around uh, all hooey, no dewey type scenario. And so what I was trying to get to was if you were to rejig how potential potentially uh, the world yeah. works within Maldi-Dim. Was... Oh, you're back? Sorry. Yep. Yep. You were trying to get to something about all hooey, no dewey. Yes, all who we know do. Um, how do you reset the energy of culture within New Zealand to more empower collectiveness for action instead of just talk for talk for talk? Because all all, all who we know doy was a constant thing that would get brought up by others joking about when Māori get together, dot, 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 dot. But it doesn't feel like 2020 is a year where you can just no longer sit around and have a bunch of who 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 know doy. How, what, how do you change that where it becomes about more action and empowerment and collectiveness of, of all of it instead of many times when people feel it's just another hooey, just a yarn? Okay. So I I um, I have a big problem with this idea of all hooey, no dooey because I have never observed it. that. Um, I have never observed that to be a reality. I think that's uh, racist. um caught it all about um, trying to define what happens for Māori and Māori processes. My mm. experience over the last, definitely the last 20 years, is that there's been a hell of a lot of Dewey uh, on very little resource. And actually the problem is not the lack of Dewey. The problem is that we're expected to do things with very little money and to have mm. extraordinary outcomes despite um, there being few of us, very few Māori doctors, very few Māori specialists, just to take that tiny area. Um, when you look at the, if you follow the money, if you follow the money that's put into um, Māori health innovation, Māori business innovation, as you've already alluded to, we get the crumbs off the table. And so, um, my experience is actually completely the opposite of this mythology, which is that Māori are all hui no dui. In fact, um, we we do have hui, we do have wānanga. We, we're often expected to jump at the last minute when various government departments and ministries say, oh, invite for this, yep. We want to have a committee, we want to have a meeting with some key Māori players about, let's say, suicide prevention, about uh, infant mental health, about um, maternal mental health, about youth justice, about cannabis, and we need to have the meeting next week. Can you just drop everything that you do that you get paid for? Oh, and by the way, you won't be paid for this. So, you know, I, I'm, I want to try to be involved in those things. For example, I was, I was invited and it, I was very flattered, to be honest, to be invited to be on the Prime Minister Science Advisors cannabis mm. panel. And it was unpaid. There was, um, they would reimburse travel expenses. It was in Auckland. Uh, and so I was able to go to some of those meetings and participate in the many, many emails and the reviewing of various reports, which took a lot of time. Um, and I did that. And, and this is, this is ju I just give this illustration to show that this is what we're all doing. That's one part of the doing. I'm also out in the community trying to encourage young people to think about science careers, to think about health careers. Um, and I'll, I'll give you another sort of segue into this um, this rubbish about all hui no doing. So um, what, one, of the, one of the key measures of how people get promoted, how people get paid more money, how people get more influence in many institutions my my experiences around um, health institutions like DHBs and universities is your CV, and mm. and people in business are also well aware that the CV has a lot of power. So one of the things that I've uh, interrogated and I've written about publicly is that the CV is not some sort of benign neutral measure. There are certain types of CVs that we know are more likely to create leverage for people to get promoted and get paid more money, etc. And so for, for Māori, for Māori researchers, clinicians, 
uh, people working to try to transform and create potential opportunities, create growth and um, better lives for our own communities. We spend a lot of time and energy doing stuff actually in the community, hands-on with our own people. It's very hard to capture that in a traditional CV. And I've mm. argued about this with, um, you know, very influential, usually older white men in positions of extreme power in these organizations. And, you know, they don't necessarily get it in the first or the second or the third conversation. It takes a lot of persuasion and um, perseverance, shall we say, and diplomacy to actually get some of these people in positions of power to realize that when they, they and I've had people say to me, well, about a, an, another Maori woman's CV who I'm and many others are, are saying this woman needs to be promoted. And they, these men have said to me, well, it's not the CV of a principal investigator, is it? To which I've replied, no. It's not. It's the CV of a woman who has published in peer-reviewed journals. She's also a leader in her community and her research and her uh, research, which is translational about implementing findings in the community, which is the holy grail of research. Um, the stuff that she's been doing actively in the community is very difficult to capture. And I've also said, maybe we should start requiring some of our non-Māori colleagues to show on their CVs what their tetiriti activities have been and how they are demonstrating cultural competency to work in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So um, I refute the idea of all-Kuikuri. I think that that has been um, promulgated as a racist myth about what goes on in the Māori community. Shit, that was some fire. I like that. <laughs> okay, so I'll rejig a question. How, what would the biggest opportunity for a collective of Māori to get more influence for its own culture be for New Zealand in the next year? Because I was on a phone call the other day with um, a, fr a friend of ours from the retreat talking about um, – you know, when all the pieces are in place, it's easy to make a move. You know, yeah. when we know all the players, when you know, I mean, you know, you know the game, you know the players. When everything's set up, you can finally then make a move. If you were to make a move for Māori Dim right now, that's a ninja move to help culture potentially generationally, what would that be? Mm, that is a very good question. I, I, I've been studying that one. I've been, I've been working. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a few different, different approaches in there's no one ninja move is probably my first thought. There are multiple ninja moves that would need to be occurring and are occurring now, you know. So so one is about the power of local. Mm. I think that... What do you mean by that? Yeah. So there's enormous power in the in, in local Māori because because just to just to contextualize what I'm about to say, we use the word Māori and, and there's a convention and there's some utility and value in using the word Māori. In actual fact, the 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 hapu, the subtribe is the political powerhouse of the of the iwi of the tribe and so many of us actually relate very strongly to our um our particular area of origin as well as to this construct that we have of Māoridom. So I, I have experienced firsthand that when I go home to where I'm from and we're working to, to create a sense of pride and identity and brand, if you will, in Murifinoa, in the far north, in Opori, in Natikuri, in Te Rarua, in Naitakoto, um, because that, that is still an evolving journey for many people who live at home. Mm. So I think one of the ninja moves is around, um, you know, I think we could, we could actually probably waste a lot of time and energy trying to convince people that our culture is of value. I think we need to operate from a position of our culture is of value. Our culture is of legacy intergenerational value. This has already been well established. That, 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 there is proof of concept of that. 
Um, let's let's unashamedly operate from that perspective, from mm. our own iwi origins, from our own hapu origins. So in Opodi, for example, we are, you know, I, I'm re a recent member of a couple of commercial boards, and we are really looking to maximise our own economic well-being, sustainability, the unique facets that we have in terms of our relationship with our environment, which goes back, you know, to time immemorial. And what are the things that make us feel good as a people in our way of speaking our language and our stories? This is the ninja move. I, I mean, I've been reflecting quite a bit in the last few days, especially in the context of this Gates Foundation conference about what is what is the role globally for me personally? Hmm. And to be honest, right now, I'm, I'm thinking that my energies are much better spent focusing on local things. Um, we have unique things in New Zealand. We are we have co we've coped with COVID quite differently and effectively. Um, and so let's let's build on that. And let's build on that from a Māori perspective, because actually we have had a different journey in COVID with, um, as I touched on earlier, you know, we have history, had to take care of our own. You know, I know up home there were some um, mechanisms were put in place to protect Komatua, who were seen as very vulnerable. And we, frankly, people said, well, we can't rely on the government in these early stages to do much, so we're going to have to do it ourselves. So my sense is that the ninja moves, while they have to come from multiple um, directions, at the heart is coming back to our, our language. It's very attractive, our language, our culture, our way of living, our connectivity, our stories. You know, and that, it reminds me actually of that. There's an old saying from the theatre, make the audience do the work. Really, really great actors, really great performers don't tell people in the audience how to feel or what's happening. They they draw you in because what they're doing is so compelling. And I think there's something in there in terms of our ninja thinking around how Māori culture actually is at the heart of, of our whole country, of our the well-being of our whole country. And we've started to do it. We've started to draw people in. We're seeing non-Māori taking up te reo me ona tikanga. We're seeing um, a real growth in the demand for that. Hmm. So let's keep drawing people in. Let's make the audience do the work. And let's keep reminding people about tetiriti and partnership and what is real partnership. Because we will carry on doing what we do We've had to get, we've had to become experts in Pākehā culture, but so far Pākehā people have not had to become experts in our culture, but that time is now. Mm. I think even more on the top of that too, with the wave of the next generation really caring about the planet and shifting how um, big corporates are thinking about planet purpose, people profit, yada, yada, yada. It feels like the commercial world is pulling more towards the physical being of the planet and its lakes and trees and all sorts. And I remember I was at a at the EHF um, Edward Henry Fellowship thing that they had a couple of years ago with Yosef and this weapon dude, um, Scott, who was one of the founders, I think, of like, um, Coinbase or some trillion dollar tech thing. He had a simple idea He and, and it was really so genius that I wonder why it hasn't either happened or become a thing. He goes, you know, every business has shareholders. So why don't we just be able to make our mountains and lakes assets and then we give them shares of dividends? And I was like, what? It's like, you know, well, let's say if Rope is your, uh, your maunga and you're like, all right, my my dividends for this is 10% of Facebook is owned by Mount Ruapehu and those dividends are going to go back to make it clean and water and look after it and actually turn the planet into its own um, literal uh, dividend payout shareholding, shareholding um, shareholders for businesses is making asset. And it was just this crazy idea. Then I thought, wait a second, 
That's really interesting. But it was the point of how do you literally connect the problem with the planet, make the yep. planet a commercial entity, and then people will care about it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's quite a stretch for me. I think that one of the useful um, parts that I take from that is that we now do have uh, parts of our our country that are legal entities um mm. they have they, they have the same rights as a person and so that's actually one of the challenges that i raise in the book is if if papa tuanuku if our planet had the same rights as a person um how would we interact with her mm. um that's how we interact now with the Urawira, uh with the whanganui river and i think indigenous cultures around the world um have have the leadership stories, have the leadership um, uh, tech, uh, ancient tech. I often talk about tikanga as as ancient yep. tech because these are the keys through which we can reclaim those relationships with the planet that will then drive behaviour um, and drive the you know the positive reinforcement. People change mm. and do things differently because it feels better. And they get something from it. They derive mm. pleasure. They derive benefit in some very tangible way. And that's what happens when you um, facilitate using using for 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 us uh, Maori tech, Maori tikanga. Uh, you use tikanga to help people reconnect with our roles as kaitiaki of the planet and of our oceans. On mm. that note, pretty shortly, I'm unfortunately going to have to go and do my my other job. Uh, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> it's been amazing talking to you, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Um, a okay. Always, always good banter. I'll be back soon. We'll get to hang. Uh, yeah, yeah, that'd be lovely to have you back in Aotearoa, and love to the far note. Appreciate yeah. it. I'm so, I'm sorry you're six minutes late for your your other meeting. I didn't expect we'd go over. We'll blame the technology. We'll blame the technology. Lovely to see love you. Love your work. I'll see you soon. Much love. Okay. Kakite. See ya. Dr. Hinamoa Elder. Weapon. Psychiatrist, brain researcher, all sorts of amazingness, all wrapped up into one great Kiwi and good friend, Hinamoa Elder. Very cool. I'm stoked that she could join us on the show. And Really interesting, different cultural perspectives on um, different moments of how people are perceiving things, um, but aligned on the fact that it's an asset liability. It's there's a moment, um, and uh, her book Aroha. You can get it, check it out. Super cool. Um, I'm about halfway through it now, um, and there's a whole bunch of good goodness in there. Hope you've enjoyed the day, the the uh, the interview we had with Hanamar. Join the rest of the day, team. I'll see you soon.